RiskWatch is a due diligence and compliance podcast featuring interviews with leading compliance, investigations, and research professionals to shed light on global corruption and compliance-related issues. RiskWatch is brought to you by VCheck Global, a business-to-business provider of due diligence, background checks, employment screening, document retrieval, and specialized research of both business entities and individuals. Seth Harlan of RiskWatch here, joined by James Cohn, Executive Director of Transparency International Canada, and Shanti Salas, VP North America with Open Corporates. It's great to have you guys on today to discuss Transparency International's recently released 2021 Corruption Perceptions Index. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Seth. Of course. So to kick off, let's touch on the pandemic. Can't avoid it. Reflecting on 2021, it's everywhere. A finding that immediately catches my attention looking at the CPI is just the breadth and corruption of human rights violations attributed to COVID-19. James, this one's for you. Looking back to March 2020, did the TI team anticipate COVID's rapid transformation into an international corruption issue? Based on it being an emergency situation, I think we could see that because while it's a situation affecting the West on a level like this, maybe for the first time in a long time, you've seen other emergencies around the world. So if we look at, say, Ebola outbreak in West Africa, you saw the same kind of corruption risks around there, around procurement, around even charity, around the use of emergency measures to crack down on civil society. You've seen emergency measures in other places. So while, say, Western Europe or North America or Australia, Japan or what have you might have more robust accountability systems and oversight systems in place, the sheer speed and magnitude of the situation of funding, of getting money out the door for procurement creates massive risks as well. So all the flags would be there. It's just hitting a lot of countries that aren't used to that kind of thing. In jumping off on the procurement issue, so prior to the pandemic, global awareness of the need for anti-corruption safeguards in public procurement was limited. And now that this issue has seen the light of day, do you guys think we can realistically expect preventative measures to be put in place? Or is this issue just going to be forgotten as countries rush for economic recovery? You know, I would say that preventative measures are possible, but they require thoughtful analytics, the right tools, and good data. And the area of my purview is really transparent legal entity data. That could have played a part in proactively reducing fraud. And really in the U.S. context, the Secret Service estimated that $100 billion has been defrauded in various COVID-19 relief programs. One of the big ones is the Paycheck Protection Program. And simple checks around things like incorporation date were not done with PPP loans. And some of the work that we've seen and we've been involved in is simple checks such as when a PPP loan was applied for, what is the incorporation date? It turns out in some cases, legal entities were incorporated weeks or months prior to putting forth a loan application. And this happened at scale. This was very programmatic. And there are some very simple checks that could have been done early on proactively in a programmatic fashion to reduce the fraud risk. I would say that there's definitely lessons learned coming out of all this. Who knows when we're going to see the end, but at least when things slow down enough, 
for governments to look back and say, how did we conduct ourselves and what could change? Procurement definitely comes out of it. And as Shanti said, you know, the case studies are right there for some countries. In Canada, we still need to have a look at the full scale. But even outside of the pandemic, there's movements towards greater procurement transparency. We've seen the movement towards the anti-slavery movement in procurement coming up, legislation around anti-torture connected to China, and the increasing move for ESG standards within public procurement. That's been proposed in Canada. And while the ESG movement within procurement might be heavily focused on environmental standards, of course, you have society and governance and anti-corruption would go into that. So even if it doesn't come out of the pandemic, I think there's enough other things moving into oversight and review of procurement to have an effect. Just wrapping up on the topic of the pandemic, one notable effect was the rapid shift of brick and mortar businesses to online only operations. We're seeing social networks like Facebook playing a huge role in commerce, especially in locations like Southeast Asia. Do you guys think it's possible for watchdogs and regulators to monitor these out of sight, out of mind transactions without infringing on individual privacy? So I would say that whether business is happening online or it's brick and mortar in a more traditional fashion, certain know your customer and know your business, know which business counterparty you're getting involved with, remain a fundamental part of any ethical business environment. And really, from open corporate's perspective, transparent legal entity data is part of that equation. And we see that regulators definitely have a role to play in ensuring and fostering transparent legal entity data so that it remains open, accessible, and really importantly, machine-readable. Yeah, I would say the out-of-sight, out-of-mind should really play a factor if it's still part of anything that would touch exactly as Shante said, know your customer due diligence. So it's a matter of just ensuring that those regulations are expanded correctly. Going back to the CPI, the index notes transparency challenges surrounding shell companies. And this is a topic which received widespread attention several months ago, October 2021, when the Pandora Papers were released. One thing I found in reviewing the indexes, it is so tempting to focus on the lowest scoring countries. However, this can lead to glancing over a fascinating finding, which is the increase in corruption within TI labeled at the relatively clean countries. And this uptick is credited to anonymous shell companies. What do you guys recommend to governments and organizations seeking to overcome this well-known global transparency obstacle? Yeah, I might speak to the CPI. You're right that this has always been a critique of the CPI, especially when the map comes up, that you'll see a certain portion of the world in deep reds and then Western Europe and Canada and U.S., maybe a little less so right now for both countries that have been dropping, Japan, Australia, whatnot or lighter yellows. And it can give the impression that corruption only happens within national borders and stays there, as opposed to the reality that modern corruption really works as a global illicit financial flow system, which you have to look at. And the quote-unquote clean countries, the rule of law countries, have set themselves up nicely to be the facilitators of the hubs of this global network, and even the movers of that money. So it's good that within TI, we're kind of correcting that perspective that just because you're a lighter yellow doesn't make you culpable to the corruption in the deep red countries. So in addressing it, there's a lot of movement towards this, especially around beneficial ownership transparency, which not a silver bullet, nothing is, but 
taking away the getaway vehicle of illicit financial flows through shell companies and making the enablers, the lawyers, the accountants, the real estate agents who help move the money through those vehicles, making them accountable is a massive movement right now. I think that's an excellent point. And I would say that in the past few years, I've been impressed with the work that Transparency International has done to really shift the focus on enablers and enabling legal structures in wealthy countries, both legal entities such as trusts, as well as more traditional corporate structures. Because it's these enabling structures and networks that are an integral part of corruption everywhere and really inextricably linked to corruption in less wealthy places. So I think the big movement toward transparency measures in wealthier countries will have a positive knock-on effect everywhere. And James mentioned UBO disclosure via public registries. That's very much a part of that. But also just general corporate registry transparency, opening up very basic information in corporate transparency in a way that makes it useful for investigators. I mentioned earlier, machine-readable, open-accessible machine-readable for journalists, anti-corruption investigators. The real magic of investigations happens when one can easily combine disparate data sets. And these could be data sets across jurisdictions or just different types of data sets. So we really do see transparency measures and regulatory measures toward opening up, let's say, legal entity data, procurement data as really a positive and really something that could have sort of a positive knock-on effect globally. Yeah. And just to build on what Shanti said quickly about the importance of journalists and civil society, and this is why all of our organizations are calling on publicly accessible data. There could be the argument made that, well, why can't just law enforcement have access to this data? But let's be realistic that the resources aren't there, and oftentimes law enforcement are following the leads of what investigative journalists have found out or what civil society found out. So we need an all eyes on this issue situation to go forward. Just on the subject of money laundering, a challenge lies in breaking through the apathy and cynicism among ordinary people. And this is certainly made more difficult by the day-to-day challenges posed by the pandemic, like ongoing school closures and inflation. And just looking at our countries, Shanti and I were in the US, James, you're in Canada. Do you guys think garnering widespread public support for effective AML measures is achievable? I would say that awareness is growing especially when ordinary people see the effect on real estate prices right around them. This has been an issue in in certain sort of big cities that are traditionally kind of global hubs, thinking kind of like New York, Miami, Vancouver. When illicit funds are laundered into real estate via shell structures, it increasingly affects ordinary people who get priced out of the market. And, you know, we've seen some good initiatives to address this. In the U.S., we've seen FinCEN's geographic targeting orders aim to address this in part by mandating disclosure of those purchasing high-end real estate properties anonymously. But we've also seen good movement toward more open real estate registries and having beneficial ownership attached to those real estate registries. I think British Columbia has made some good moves in that respect. Yeah. Talking to the general public about beneficial ownership transparency and the nuances of the Proceeds of Crime Money Laundering Terrorist Financing Act in Canada, can make most people's eyes glaze over. But in 2016, when the Panama Papers came out, a term came out of it called snow washing because the Canadian angle of this, the intermediaries were marketing Canada as a place to bring your dirty money and it will be cleaned like the pure white snow. 
because of our lax regulation systems. So when I say snow washing to people, it kind of opens their eyes and gets them to connect. And then once you connect it to the real estate issue, as Shanti said, really everyone notices it then. And British Columbia took the lead on this as property prices in Vancouver skyrocketed and more information came out about the extent of money laundering in British Columbia connected to the casinos and to luxury items and the fentanyl trade that there's been a provincial inquiry going on for the last two years. But Canadians have to recognize that it's not just west of the Rocky Mountains. It's a national issue. So we have a provincial election coming up in Ontario this year in June, and there's already momentum towards discussing this issue here. One of the political parties has put forward a bill for a similar registry in Ontario, as we've seen in BC. And constantly in the headlines, the connection between money laundering and real estate prices is coming up. Now, I would never say money laundering is the reason that real estate prices are going up. There's multiple. But within BC, the Ministry of Finance commissioned a report to look at what's the impact, and they calculated an increase of 5 to 7% on real estate across BC on average. That's not even in the lower mainland where Vancouver is. So it is resonating with people. Now, the difficulty is talking about the nuanced technical issues that are required to address the problem. And even though there are some measures going forward, like the land registry in BC and the proposal for a corporate registry nationally, a lot of Canadians, understandably, are frustrated that they're not seeing results now. So it is really important to not let the apathy kick in that people perceive nothing is getting done. We have to scream and shout and keep the government on track. But there are starting to be things getting done, which is positive. I'd say it's interesting. Just one thing I've noticed looking into Canada in the past, even BC, is just that accessibility issue. I'm sure this has come across in your work, James. There's first a cost barrier when you're trying to look at property records. And then also, you know, you have to go to two, three, four different sites just to access this information. So I think even if the public wants to get more involved and become more knowledgeable, it's a huge turnoff, cost and just the time required. We're calling for publicly accessible, and BC put a $5 search fee on the land registry. And as Shanti said, these should be machine-readable, easy-to-access data, which the BC registry is not. And it doesn't even have a proactive verification system on the data. So where we said that civil society or journalists would be able to spot the problems, there's already a barrier to access. So those changes need to be made in BC. And if we see a registry come up in Ontario, hopefully they'll learn the lessons from BC and course correct. I mean, I make those criticisms, but it's good that BC at least took the step. They just need to make the registry better. In planning ahead for the coming months, really pressing topics, supply chain disruption, the reverberations is extending across diverse industries. And as we mentioned a little while ago, it extends into our personal lives. To mitigate these logistical challenges, we're seeing a lot of supply chain management solutions coming to market. And a number of these offerings, you know, they're offering automation, artificial intelligence, a combination. But do you guys think there's an area of data these solutions are frequently missing or not prioritizing to the detriment of their users? I would say that it's certainly excellent that we are seeing so much more focus on supply chain risk. And of course, what flows from that is new tools for supply chain risk intelligence and management. We have to remind ourselves that they always require good data. The tools may be amazing, but they have to be hydrated with good data. 
Without that, for instance, a regulator doesn't necessarily know who to target as a potential violator. And for us, that really means transparent legal entity data, a lot of multifaceted uses for it. But big picture, I mean, it's excellent to see that the regulatory pressure around supply chain issues such as forced labor is not letting up. We've seen a lot of new laws in a lot of places around that, new regulation, some interesting advisories that have been coming out in the U.S. really in the past two years, and also old tools being applied in new ways. U.S. Customs has something called the Withhold Release Order, and I think it's very heartening to see that applied really for supply chain issues around forced labor in kind of novel ways. But back to my point, supply chain tools to really understand management of a supply chain, one really has to have good data and a good network of data. That's going to be a continuous challenge, but you know it's a challenge that we have to take head on. Yeah, I totally agree with Shanti. The old saying, garbage in, garbage out. And that's what we've been saying about the beneficial ownership registry in Canada is that the registry would have to collect the best data possible. And same here. So the more countries that are going towards beneficial ownership transparency, the better. And I think we're at over 100 countries around the world right now are committed to having beneficial ownership register, whether publicly accessible or not. So there's good momentum there. Then when you have the regulations looking at different aspects of, well, what is it that we're trying to address in terms of environmental degradation, things like illegal logging or whatnot, or modern slave labor, that gives us an indicator of what we're looking for. And then, of course, even within the supply chain, making sure that the large companies mentor the smaller companies within their supply chain so that they know what's required of them and they have the capability to look at the information. What we constantly hear is the large companies have the money to hire their army of compliance officers and internal advice, but it's the small, medium-sized enterprises who also need access to this information so that they're not caught up in wrongdoing as well. And so even governments can help here with, say, export development banks for each government can help out with that. So as we see the movement towards the supply chain issue, exactly the data making it better, pinpointing what it is that we want to actually address and making sure that all companies along the supply chain are aware of their obligations and have access to the same tools and data. Just to wrap up, is it possible to get a preview of any exciting anti-corruption projects your organizations have in the works? <laughs> I'll give you a little taste of something that is coming up that you'll see in the coming weeks from Open Corporates. Open Corporates worked with a coalition of civil society organizations to really advocate for Illinois to make its corporate data open, accessible, and machine-readable. And that did happen late last year. They passed a law, and this year we should see their corporate registry data become much more open, accessible, and transparent. We consider that definitely a huge victory. That's great to hear. I mean, you guys, well, within the states, you have many more jurisdictions than we have here, but still a struggle. And in that sense of figuring out how transparent are our corporate records without giving too much away, we're doing a little bit of digging into that with hopefully data to show in the next few months. And then, as I alluded to earlier with snow washing, it was the intermediaries who were selling Canada on the idea of snow washing. We've been looking at who else has been selling snow washing, who's part of Snow Washing Inc. And the research that we've seen, the boldness with which some companies 
advertise Canada as a secrecy jurisdiction is, to be honest, jaw-dropping. We've been working on this one for quite some time. I hope to get some results out there within the near future. And then, of course, the Canadian government, as I said, has ESG standards for procurement. On the map, it was in the mandate letter for the president of the Treasury. So it's another area we want to look into is making sure that beneficial ownership transparency is in all levels of government procurement, right down to the municipal level, which is the wild west of oversight. And not just procurement, but also licensing and permits. And there's been a lot of headlines, okay, not a lot, but there's been some headlines around even university grants and who is being issued those connected, especially to 5G research. That's something we want to look into as well on this front. Just so our listeners can stay up to date with both of you guys, what's the best place to follow you? Like James, I know you're prolific on Twitter, Shanti, the open corporate (laughs) blog, I'm guessing. Where should we go? Well, as you said, I'm on Twitter at JamesCohen82, or you can follow TI Canada at TI underscore Canada on Twitter. We're on LinkedIn as well. We're on Facebook, or you can go to transparencycanada.ca for our website and join our newsletter and stay up to date on everything. For open corporates, it's open corporates on Twitter, open corporates on LinkedIn, as well as blog.opencorporates.com. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. Both James, Shanti, thanks for making this possible. It was great to have you. I was waiting for the index to come out. So glad we were able to cover all the topics and I look forward to having you both back on. Great. It was great talking with you both. 